the journey? <clears throat> well, growing up in, up in the great state of Minnesota, uh, we, we had a thing that we called Minnesota goodbyes. And I don't know if it's, it's migrated to Nebraska or not. May, maybe it sounds familiar. But it, in Minnesota, uh, when you say goodbye, there's certain parting etiquette and words that you would use to express, you know, your farewell to friends and loved ones. And over the years, you know, in our family, it really uh, was honed to an art form. And there's two defining characteristics of a Minnesota goodbye. One is the length. And the other is the key wording. Now, regarding the length, Minnesota goodbyes are incredibly long. Typically, they start between 60 and 90 minutes before the person actually leaves the house. And, you know, it starts in the living room or the kitchen where, where you're hanging out. And, and when your company or guest is about ready to begin that transition, it always begins with the phrase, well, we should get going. Now, that's code for the process is now going to start. So then... <laughs> <laughs> then the ritual begins, right? Um, even though they say that phrase, no, no movement takes place because the conversations continue on and on, and, and you might even pick up a new subject or two. But then eventually there's a slow migration towards the door. Um, and eventually if it's winter out, the, the coats are put on and conversation continues. And then one, once your company or guest touches the doorknob, that's signal for a whole new conversation to begin. Now, at that point, it's thoroughly discussed, all of the ins and outs and are debated, and the hand still stays on the doorknob, and it's carried through. Well, then, then once the door opens, your, your company exits the home finally, and this is at about the 45-minute mark. Now, th then, you, then you're required to stand out in front of the house and begin a new conversation as your company slowly makes their way to their vehicle. So you might even, as the host, you might even put your coat on and, and go outside with your company to continue this conversation um, for another oh, 15 minutes or so outside. And then once your company um, actually gets into their vehicle, they immediately lower the window on the car. And conversation continues for another five, ten minutes. So now, now you're at the hour, you know, 75-minute mark, and, and, and the company finally uh, is getting ready. They put the car into reverse, and then two key phrases are uttered by the host. One is, watch out for deer, and the second is, be careful of ice. And then you smile and wave, and the Minnesota goodbye is complete when they, when they pull away. Now, a Minnesota goodbye communicates two things. Affection, you know, as you, you know, you might not think of it, but those words, those four words, watch out for deer, really are just communicating that you love this person and you want them to be safe. So these goodbyes are about affection and they're just really wordy and long. Well, today we begin a series of sermons looking at the final discourse and sermon or the parting words of Jesus to his disciples. And this might be Jesus' own version of a Minnesota goodbye because it's full of affection and it's really long. In fact, if your Bible uses red letters for the words of Jesus, you're going to see a lot of red letter words in chapters 13 through 17. And in these chapters, Jesus really reveals his heart to his disciples. He re reveals an intimate portrait of, of who he is, but also communicates his affection 
and kind of some last things that he, last commands or instructions that he is giving to his disciples. Now, as we begin this series of sermons, let me kind of set the framework for you of, of the book of John, because this is helpful to understand as we spend some weeks in John chapter 14 or 13 through 17. John, the author, he writes, he writes the purpose of his book very clearly in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written, in other words, referring to his book, his letter, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So John sets out his purpose in telling us that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God, and that by believing we have eternal life. And if you look at the overall picture of John, it's really, it can be divided up into two halves. The first part of, of John is chapter 1 through 12, and that's been referred to by scholars and, and commentary, commentators as the book of signs. And it's the book of signs because it's Jesus' public ministry, and he utilizes signs and miracles to point the people to him that he is the Messiah, the, the Son of God. Now, the second half of the book starts in verse, or chapter 13 and goes through chapter 21, and that's been called the book of glory. And that's Jesus' private ministry. Uh, his audience is really narrowed down to a select circle. In fact, the, the chapters that we, that we will be looking at in this series, Jesus is only addressing and talking to his disciples in 13 through 17. So in, in the second half of John, the book of glory, there's only one sign that's pointed to, and that's the cross. So chapter 13, verse 1, opens up this second half, this book of glory, and chapter 13 almost serves like an introduction to the second half. So chapters 14 through 17 are really his final teachings that explains this final sign, this final event, which is the cross. So you can think of the book kind of like the arc of a pendulum. So it it starts out high, has a low point, and ends on, on the high point again. John chapter 1, the, the book begins with this high point that, that, that tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, referring to Jesus. And it tells us you know, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. It's like God has entered creation. And then as, as this pendulum swings down, as, the, as his ministry progresses, hostility and tension towards Jesus increases. And, and he begins to uh, experience uh, this hostility as the stories unfold. And the very low point of the book is in chapter 13, verse 30, where Judas has betrayed Jesus. And it tells us in verse 30 that it was night. Judas has just left to carry out his betrayal. Night has descended, and that's the low, low point of the book. And then it begins the upward swing again, and that's the book of glory. And it ends on the high note of Jesus going to the cross. And that arc idea is important because we see the cross not as the low point, not as defeat, but as victory, as triumph. Because over and over again, Jesus tells us in John, he uses this phrase that the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that idea of being lifted up is the same idea of being exalted. And he, and he refers, uses that phrase to refer to the cross. 
And he says, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, pointing to the cross, and he, Jesus is going to be ultimately exalted on the cross. So over these next few weeks, we're going to look at that upward swing in the book of John. That point us to the cross. You know, and that, that's important to understand that Jesus is ultimately glorified when he goes to the cross. So like I said, this, this discourse of Jesus, his final sermon, his final parting words is a very intimate setting with intimate friends and is filled with affection. Because in John chapter 13, verse 33, he addresses his disciples as my children. He says, my children, I will be with you just a little longer. And he could just sense and hear the affection in the words of Jesus when he said that. And when I read that, I, I thought of it like a parent addressing a child b before the parent leaves for an evening or is going to be away. And, and it, the parent kind of anticipates the question when, when the kids ask, can, can, can I go with you? You know, can I come along? You know, and these disciples are saying, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. You know, we, we, wherever you go, we will go. Just let us go with you. And as, we, as the story unfolds, Jesus says, no, you're going to stay here. I'm going. But then he gives his disciples a few things to do while he is gone. Sounds like a, like a parent, doesn't it? You know, you're, you're heading out on date night with your spouse. The babysitter's come over, and you're like, okay, you know, I'll be gone, and we'll be gone just a little while, and while I'm gone, here's what I'd like you to do. You know, don't kill your sister, don't hurt the babysitter, and just, you know, obey your mom and dad, obey the babysitter. Well, Jesus know, knows that he doesn't have a lot of time left, but he also knows his disciples these guys that he has, has had an intimate relationship with over three years, these disciples are left with a lot of uncertainty. He knows that in the days ahead, there's going to be some challenges for them. So he's trying to prepare them for this kind of struggle. He wants them to get ready, and ultimately he wants them to stay on mission. And I think Jesus would say some of the same things to us today. So take in the scene for a moment. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet earlier in chapter 13. Judas has left to betray him. He's broken the news to his disciples that he is leaving and you have to stay here. And he sees that his disciples are confused. They don't get it. They're disappointed. They're scared. There's uncertainty. And he sees that they're troubled. And I think Jesus looks at our life sometimes and see that as we're going through life, there's a lot of uncertainty. We can be disappointed, that we can be frightened, we're, we're troubled by this world. And I think the words that Jesus gives us in this final discourse can bring us comfort as well. So this discourse, this final parting words takes place in the upper room, the place where they had celebrated his last meal with his disciples. And as this, as this meal is celebrated, they're sitting around the table. And Jesus wants to show them, ultimately, a new way of living. And that's what this is all about. A new way forward, a new way of living. So what does that new way of living look like? Well, Jesus describes it this way. 
This is verse 34 and 35 of John 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So this new way of living, first of all, has a new object, a new object of love. There's a new twist on it, but it's new but not so new. Now, if you remember, uh, there, in the Old Testament, there was two love commands that Jesus points out are the greatest commands. One of them is found in the book of Deuteronomy uh, where it says, Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the other greatest command that Jesus points out is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19. So this idea of loving God, loving your neighbor, was not necessarily new. Every Israelite would have known those commands. Every disciple would have got, yeah, I I know we're supposed to love our neighbor. That would have resonated with them. But do you notice the twist that Jesus put on that? He doesn't say, love your neighbor. He says, I'm giving you a, a new command to love one another. This is a, a, an extension to this kind of commitment that Jesus is calling his disciples to, an extension of this commandment. And that's why he says this is new. Now, in, in Jesus' day, their, their world, their culture, man, it was filled with prejudice, filled with divisions and inequality. So much so that it, that it makes our world look like uni, unicorns and rainbows everywhere we turn. You know, for, for them, they had masters and slaves, clear division. They had Jews and non-Jews, what they called the Gentiles. And the Greeks regarded the, the Jews as barbarians, and Rome ruled everywhere and controlled everybody. And the Jews had this reputation of being haters, you know, of the world. And there's this vast chasm between men and women and children and adults the world was hopelessly, helplessly alienated in that time. So in that cultural mindset, Jesus gives this command to love. And and he broadens it because he says it's now a new commandment because there's a new covenant that Jesus is bringing in. A new commandment to this new group of disciples. It's no longer just Israel, but it's this new group of disciples centered around Christ, centered around the new community of God that Jesus is ushering in. No longer is it just the Israelites because Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament. And as he fulfills it, he institutes this new church, this community of God, the family of God. And with that, he says, okay, there's a new twist to this command of love, to love one another. So he says, from, we're taking it from outside your neighbor to those close by to one another. So he's, he's asking us today to rethink how we love, rethink the way we love. Now, honestly, it's easier to love people that are at a distance, isn't it? You know, when we think about our neighbors, you know, they're physically, you know, far away we might not have a close relationship with them. And it's easy to love people that, you know, that are at an arm's length distance. It's a lot harder to love people that are close by and near. And why is that? Well, the people that are close by and near, you spend time with day after day, 
You know, you might be in the same house. You might see them week after week in church. And when you begin to spend time with them, you, you begin to notice those little things in their life or their speech or their attitudes, their heart that might rub you the wrong way. And the more you get to know a person, sometimes the harder it is to love them because you really get to see their heart. You know, I've done, I've done a lot of short-term mission trips over the years and traveling to different countries and to spend a week at 10 days, even two weeks sometimes with people um, doing the mission work. And it's easy to, to love those people in the countries that, that you go to because you realize that, yeah, I'm on this mission trip. I'm only going to be here for seven or 10 days. So I'm going to pour my life into them. But you know what? Then you get back on the plane, you come back home, and it's easy to be removed from that. And then you come back into your family, you come back into the people that you work with, you come back into your church family, and sometimes, you know, those of us here can be a little challenging to even get along with, yet alone love. So the new object that Jesus gives us is to love people right here in this church family. Love the people around you that, that you sit by on Sunday mornings. Love, love the people in your life groups. Love, love the people that we have fellowship here within the church. But you know the problem with this command that Jesus gives us is impossible to require somebody to love. You know, you, you can't make somebody love. You can't force it on somebody. Because if you do, you know, if, if you put that out there as a, you must love somebody, well, they might look like they love on the surface. They might put on this persona. They might put on the veneers like, yeah, we love everybody, but underneath their heart negates it all. It overrules it all because they're just doing it for a show. See, love must originate in the heart if it's to be genuine. And Jesus is saying, with this new commandment comes a new heart, comes a new life. <clears throat> and because of that, we can love the way Jesus wants us to. <clears throat> you know, when we're, left, when we're left on our own, we kind of seek out people like us, don't we? We, we gravitate to, towards those like us, to those that have similar interests to us. And relationships often center around uh, those that have common interests. You know, that's why when you watch the, you know, what's going on in our culture, movie stars marry movie stars because that's their common world. And doctors seek out doctors and bikers seek out bikers and huskers marry huskers. You know, you're kind of drawn to people that you like. But when Christ comes into our lives, all of that can change. Because Christ breaks down those walls. He breaks down those barriers. And Huskers can get along with Hawkeyes, you know, when Jesus is a part of your life. We can fellowship and love those people that are different because of who Jesus is. And the more we love Christ, the more we love Jesus, the greater diversity that we can have within the body of Christ. See, the cross breaks down those kind of walls. Now, what does that look like for you? You know, what kind of walls does Jesus need to break down in your relationship? You know, what do you let, what barriers do you, do you need to let Jesus remove so that you can love like Jesus loves? So there's, there's a new object for love, but Jesus goes on and gives us a new standard of love as well. 
Look at verse 34 again. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. And you know what? It'd be great if we could just stop at that period. Love one another, period. Why? Because when we look at it that way, we get to ter- determine what love looks like. We, we, get, we get to kind of set the tone. We, we get to set the schedule. We get to determine, you know, what level of love that we go to. But Jesus goes on and gives us the standard of as I have loved you. And as we continue that sentence, then we're like, oh, man, you know, we got to love like Jesus loved us. That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Well, beginning back in the beginning part of chapter 13, Jesus demonstrates to, to his disciples what this kind of love looks like. Verse 1 of chapter 13, it tells us that it was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave, <clears throat> leave this world and go to the Father. And then it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or he, he, in other words, he showed them the full extent of this love. He showed it uh, in a complete way, and he washes his disciples' feet. And then in verse 12, it tells us that when he had finished watching, washing his disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and he re- returns to his place. And then he asks a question, do, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And I have set an example for that you should do as I have done for you. And then he says, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So the standard that we are to live is Jesus, and he says, as I have loved you. So picture this. The disciples are sitting there with freshly washed feet, maybe still damp from Jesus cleaning out the the dust and dirt and grime from between their toes. And back in their day, if, if you remember, they walk everywhere. And there were, they wear sandals, so their feet are going to be dirty. They're going to be grimy. It wasn't like the disciples showed up with a fresh pedicure for Jesus to, you know, wipe, wipe the feet down. It, would, it, it was a very lowly job. And Jesus serves them with humility. And as I was thinking about that, I was trying to think about what the equivalent of that today. And, and I don't know if there is a true equivalent of washing someone's feet for Jesus' day. That was, that was reserved for the lowest of lowest servants, you know. So I don't know what, what that looks like today. Maybe it's just like willingly cleaning public bathrooms or willingly like cleaning up someone else's child when they have an explosive diaper, you know. I don't know. But it, it's that servant heart of going above and beyond. It's the kind of love that puts others' needs ahead of our own. It's the kind of love that considers others better than ourselves. It's the kind of love that seeks the best for the other person. To encourage them, to equip them in such a way that they can become the men or women of God that he wants them to be. It puts the good of your relationship ahead of your own rights. 
So this selfless nature is why Jesus calls it new. Because loving your neighbor in the Old Testament self, we get to set the agenda, you get to set the time, you get to set, you know, whether it's, if it's inconvenient, you don't need to do it. But loving Jesus, loving others as Jesus loves us is a whole different thing. So when I look at our lives, you know, we're not sitting here with freshly washed feet, but we are sitting here with like freshly washed hearts because of the grace and love that Jesus has for us. We're made clean by God's grace. So as we're sitting here made new and made clean by Jesus, who do we need to show that same love and grace to? Who do we need to rate reach out to and show the love of Jesus because he has just shown the love of himself to us. Now he might not physically be calling you to wash other people's feet. I don't know, he might do that. I've seen that done in, in wedding ceremonies, for example, and it's a pretty cool thing. But as we sit here experiencing the love of Christ in our life, who do we need to show that to that you know around you? So Jesus gives us a new object to love. He says, love one another. He gives us a new standard to love. He says, I want you to love as I have loved you. And it's also a new mark of love. It's a mark of being a disciple. It becomes a distinguishing characteristic that they would be known by loving one another. You know, th think about the things that we use today to identify ourselves as believers. You know, we, we put a fish sticker on the back of our car. You know, we, we carry around, we might wear a WWJD bracelet. If you're really committed, you might get a tattoo of something on your skin, you know, that, that a Bible verse. You know, we, we have all these things that we, we utilize to identify ourselves as believers, you know, but you won't see one of the disciples putting a Jesus fish on the back of their chariot, back of their cart. But he says this new community that we are a part of is characterized and marked by love. Back in church history, there was a second century uh, church leader named Tertullian. And Tertullian records for us um, and writes how the Romans, the Roman government, the Roman people noticed how much these Christians love for us. And one, in one of his early writings in the, in the mid-100s A.D., he, he wrote down that the, that the Romans remarked and said, look how the Christians love one another. It was so much so that in the early church days, it stood out to this pagan empire that Christians were different. So much so that they noticed about it. You know, our focus here at Journey is making disciples who go on to make disciples. Disciple-making is our purpose. More than anything else, more than activities, more than programs, anything like that, you know, uh, making disciples is our focus. But to make disciples, you yourself have to first be a disciple. And to be a disciple simply means that we're following Jesus, that we're being changed by Jesus, and we're living on mission for Jesus. And that defining characteristic in our life is characterized by how much we love one another, by how much we love those around us. 
You know, lo love is the best evangelism tool there is. It's better than any mass market media campaign. It's better than any, you know, uh, orchestrated e outreach event. But love simply proclaims God before a watching world. Better than anything else that we can do. And it's a sacrificial <clears throat> servant kind of love. So how do you know if, you, if you're living like a servant? How do you know if you have a servant kind of love? Well, you know when someone treats you like one. You know when someone treats you like a servant. And by that I mean you're, you're taken for granted or, or you, you do some type of um, outreach or you, you serve in some way and you don't get the credit. You're forgotten. You receive no praise for it. Those are hallmarks of servant kind of love. And in the Bible, there's, they use different words for, for different like degrees or levels of love. And there's like friendship love, there's brotherly love, there's romantic love. And the, the word that Jesus uses here in John 13, 34 and 35 is this word agape, agape love. And agape love is unconcerned with self and is concerned with the greatest good of one another. It requires faithfulness, it requires commitment, requires sacrifice without expecting anything in return. Well, today as I close, let, let me give you some practical steps on how we can love one another. Here's t 10 things you can do um, to show kind of love this week. Now, I don't expect you to do all 10, so as I read through these, just pick one. Pick one to do this week to show some sacrificial love to those around you. <clears throat> One, just invite somebody over to your home. Have someone over for an evening, play a game, eat together, just open up your home and invite somebody in. Another way to do it is to start a new friendship. I know that takes a risk, it takes being vulnerable, but begin a new friendship with someone that you don't know. And another way to show love is just to check in with somebody um, from the church. Maybe there's somebody that, that you haven't seen for a few weeks or, the, or that you know is not feeling well. You know, just reach out to them and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, what can I help you with? Another way to, to show love is simply vol volunteer for things of service. Specifically, volunteer for our upcoming vacation Bible school. You know, we, we still need help. That's a great way to show lo unconditional love to children. Another way is just to do a favor for somebody. When, when an ask is made of you, say yes. Let yes be the first word out of your mouth. <clears throat> Another is to practice hospitality. You know, to just have people over, open up your home, let people stay. Another way is to pray for someone. Or another way of that is simply share your faith with someone. Share your faith story about what Jesus is doing in, in your life. Another way is to take a meal to someone. We have a bunch of new babies in our church, a bunch of new moms, and, and navigating, you know, a new life in their, into their home. Uh, reach out to those people and bring them a meal. Lastly, forgive someone. Let go of that bitterness, let go of that anger, and forgive. So pick one of those this week. Just do one and show some love to one another. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up this morning. You know, G Jesus shows us a new way of living. 
He shows us a new object of love. Instead of just your neighbors, it's now the one another's of this close community. He gives us a new standard to love. <clears throat> and he gives us, he tells us that love is the, the mark of a believer. And all of that is made possible. All of that only makes sense. It's only doable when we say yes to Jesus. Because if, if Jesus hasn't transformed us from the inside out, you know, this kind of love doesn't make sense according to our culture, our world. So let me encourage you today to say yes to the love that Jesus has for you. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, I want to thank you for Jesus, for the love that he shows to us first and foremost. And as he do, does, Lord, you show us how we can love other people as well. So, Father, first, may each person in this room say yes to you. And then, Lord, may we follow your example and show love to those around us in such a way that we can demonstrate who you are. So, Lord, we thank you for, for making this possible through your sacrifice on the cross. And we just pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together as we worship. <clears throat>